This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you ever wanted to be a writer? Have you ever gone as far as doing a writing course? What about sharing something you've written to somebody to read? Kate Bryan has done all of that and is here with her debut novel, The Golden Book. Welcome, Kate. Thanks, Jan. Lovely to be with you. Now, this introduction wasn't really about you. It's about your character, Alison, Ali. As a middle-aged woman, she's doing a writing course. What has she been instructed to write about? Uh, she's being instructed to write about a, a couple, any couple, um, who are connected in some way. Um, and immediately she thinks of a particular very intense friendship that she had in childhood. So this is Ali and Jesse. Quote from the book, one raised to be responsible but trying not to be, the other without trying exactly the opposite. Where are their families different? Ali grows up in a, the daughter of school teachers, an only child, a very kind of middle-class family. Both her parents were educated teachers, whereas Jessie is the daughter of a single mother. She's got three brothers who are all from different fathers, a kind of hippie household, I guess. So they're the brothers Kel, Matty and Eli. Ali's had a crush on Eli ever since she saw him do a perfect swan dive into the Marimbula pool. You've set this in and around Bega. I visited there with my, my family, my kids, my partner a few years back and I was just really taken by the area but particularly I was interested in a particular waterfall called Mumbala Falls which is a site of great significance to the local Aboriginal community of the area and something about going there called up in my mind, these two girls. So it's it's a place that a bit like as Uluru used to be, where people, uh, the local custodians say, don't tell people not to swim in this beautiful waterhole, but they encourage people to reconsider swimming there. But it's, it's quite a beautiful place surrounded by mountains and bush. Um, and there's a kind of meandering path to it. And there's a natural slide in the rock. It's, it's just a, a place where lots of local kids go and, and some adults. And it's got a really magical feel. And it, there was something about it that captivated me when I went there. This is where the story starts, with brother yeah. Eli driving the two girls and their bikes exactly to that spot. It's not through the daytime. No, no, they hatch this idea, or, or Jesse does. Jesse's the, the risk taker of the two. Um, so they're both 12 at this time, and they hatch this plan, plan to camp there overnight. So Ali's parents, who wouldn't give her permission to do this, think she's staying safely at Jesse's house. Jesse's mother is kind of a bit oblivious to what she does, so they, they go there at night and they they plan to stay the night. This is to be their last quest. And I'm going to ask Kate Ryan to read from page 60 how these two girls, Jessie and Ellie, set up these quests. 
We make a, a list of experiences we have to have before we turn 13. Jessie leant over her ankle and peered at it closely, spat on her hand and picked at a bit of dried blood with a black chipped fingernail. They'll be like tests or quests. She nodded in satisfaction at coming up with the right word. Yeah, they'll get harder, like when knights had to do things to prove that they were worthy of being knights. Like in an initiation, yeah, initiations, like they did in the olden days, before we turned 13. Sort of like truth and dare, you mean? No. Jessie snapped with such contempt that Ali blushed. Not some pissy truth and dare thing. It's got to be the real deal. The tests have to push us somehow, physically, getting past the fear, that kind of thing. Only these will be things, experiences we have to have, things that will change us. She pulled Tales of the Greek Heroes off the shelf and handed it to Ali. Here, take this one. Oh, yeah. She reached onto the bed and pulled out a book. Cal got me this one too. The new book was a hardback with orangey-red typeface embossed on the cover and delicate black line drawings inside, King Arthur and his knights. Jessie wiped her nose on her sleeve and smiled. Her teeth were small and white and square in her pale face. Everything about her drew Ellie in, the tooth at the front with its chip from when she had fallen off Matty's skateboard, her air of potential chaos, of possibility. Okay, I'll look at them. This meant Ali would read them and summarise the contents. Between the two of them, they set up six quests and they had such noble titles like Quest One, Stealing the Golden Apple. Well, really, what did that mean? Uh, it was pretty prosaic. It just meant breaking into a, a house. I mean, not even really breaking in, getting in the back door of a house that they knew was empty, taking something out of the fridge, actually a bit of an old shop. Ascending <laughs> <laughs> the highest place in the land. Uh, that was climbing up onto the roof of a grandstand next to the, the local sports ground. But actually it is a very, it's, it's a structure that actually exists and it, it's really quite high. So there would be an amazing view from up top. So they really are testing each other, aren't they? You know, especially Ali, who's really much more fearful than Jessie. But she yes. follows along. There's other quests too, but the last one, the coming of the immortals. Mm -hmm. This is the waterhole at night. Whatever happened on these quests was written in Ali's best cursive in a book that they've called the Golden Book. Why was Ali the only scribe? She, I don't think this is giving too much away to say she was the only the, the one of the pair who could read. Jessie couldn't read, which sets up a kind of dynamic between them of, of power because although Jessie is the adventurous one, Ali has this power that's specific to her and in a way she really relishes that and it's a way of making up for what she lacks in bravery in the kind of terms of their friendship, that's very important. Jessie's being called unteachable. This power that you talk about that Ali had, she could write herself as the heroine in this book because Jessie can't read it. Yes, so, so that's, that's the idea. She could really write anything at all. Although the, what was supposed to be said was agreed upon between them, what Ali actually wrote down was different, different from what they actually did. And sometimes 
girls of that age can be a bit nasty too, can't they? <laughs> yes, yes, they can. I suppose I wanted to, not only girls, I guess I, I feel that children, you know, we can tend to romanticise what childhood is like, but there are often darker edges to childhood. There's a lot of competitiveness between children, rivalry, love and hate. I think in, in many ways, relationships between children are as complicated as relationships between adults, especially coming up to adolescence. I think there's a maturity there, you know, can contain a lot, a lot of adult emotion, I guess. Now, from page 147, we know here that Ali's looking towards the future, looking about what, what she thinks she can be and what she also thinks Jessie can be. Uh, she would be a writer. She had told no one, had nursed the idea like a tiny, fragile animal. But now she was sure she could do it. Maybe Jessie would do something too, something amazing, sail around the world solo or climb Everest. She could see her, red-nosed with cold and triumph at the top not having the proper boots or jacket. Or maybe she'd live on an island like Robinson Crusoe and catch fish with her bare hands. She could see this too, her thin white red hands rippling through the water and darting for them. One, two, three, now. Now, yeah. One of the things that made Ali confident to write these things is their decision of what they were going to do with this golden book after they finished this last quest. Yes, they were going to destroy it. All these years later, Ali is living in Melbourne. So what's her family life like now? She has one daughter who's nine, Tam, and she's a partner, Ed, who's a musician, and she also has a, a stepdaughter who is 22, who she's kind of reluctantly accepting is, is living with her and her daughter and her partner. We get snippets of Ali growing up getting out of Bega as soon as she could, being very unsettled at secondary school and university, depression, unplanned pregnancy, and now with a supportive Ed. But her daughter, Tam, has got a new friend. Is Ali encouraging this friendship? No, I think she feels quite threatened by the, the friendship. She's been, for various reasons that emerge as the book goes on, very protective of Tam. And now there's this girl who's come along who she feels is from a family that has kept her less safe. So she's less kind of in that middle-class world that Ali now lives in. And there's something about her and Tam's dynamic that reminds her of her and her friend, Jessie. Then there's the phone call. Why does Ali go back to Bega? Uh, because Jessie's finally died after many years of being unwell. Ali decides as an adult to write about these times and especially to write about Jessie, which will hopefully ease her guilt. Look, there's been only one place that Ali is fully at rest and that's when she's been in the water swimming and, a quote, the water cushioned Ali. Kate, are you a swimmer yourself? Because there were a lot of beautiful descriptions. <laughs> Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I, I, I find it a really interesting 
exercise to do. I mean, it's not just good exercise. I think it, it, it it's kind of allows a kind of meditation when one swims. And I found that really interesting in thinking about how a character might process something that's happened in the past. And there's a lot about swimming that seems to me close to meditation at times. And it's kind of that mind-body connection that, that is allowed. And also you're suspended, you know, you're floating. The other sort of minor theme that comes through here is the music from mm-hmm. heavy metal to the contempt of somebody who liked the Rolling Stones. There's a real mixture of music through the book. Yes, I love music, but also I think it has a, a way of taking you back to a particular time and place. And I think for, for Ali, growing up in a quiet sort of household, with routine driven, probably the ABC was, was more likely to be playing in the background of her childhood home. Whereas Jessie, each of her brothers had a different taste in music. Her mother did. And there was kind of a wildness about it that excited her as a child. And so I guess I found it interesting as well that her partner is a musician, loves music. And there was something about that about that in him that represents a creativity that she remembers from Jesse's household too. Yeah. Just the way the plot is structured and it's very clever. We have the childhood friendship being reimagined and written about. We have Ali's whole sort of growing up also in there. How difficult was it to plot all of that? There were lots and lots of versions and lots and lots of moving things around and it took quite a while to come to to the order that worked best. You know, lots of drafting and redrafting because I wanted to keep a forward momentum in the present and the past kind of running in parallel. But I, I suppose I also wanted to give some sense of someone's consciousness, how they think and process events in their life. So it was quite, it was quite hard, <laughs> but I felt like I, I got it in the end. Very polished, yes. I, I think I'm, this is a quote from your book, tiny flecks of gold in the sad story. That's exactly what I think is best to describe it. it, it a beautiful characterization. And, ah, rather sad. A debut novel, did you have any problems getting it published? It took a while. I had some sort of near misses with um, a few publishers. So Kate Ryan takes the reader back and forth in the Golden Book from a childhood friendship and devastating accident to adult acceptance of blame and learning about the nature of fear and love. Thank you very much, Kate. Pleasure. Thanks, Jan. It was great to talk to you. And now it's David's turn. Fanaticism and murder combine in Robert Gott's latest novel, The Orchard Murders. So, Robert, welcome back to 3CR. It is a privilege and a pleasure. This is the fourth novel in this ongoing series set in Melbourne around 1944. It seems to be an interesting time for topics that you can grab hold of. What fascinates me about this time is that there are so many points of reference to our own times. It is not a foreign country, really. It's very now. Our regular characters emerge in this story. Titus Lambert, who's a detective inspector, Helen Lord, Joe Sable, Dr. Clara Dawson, group captain Tom McKenzie. So we've got the return 
of these characters. And mm -hmm. it's perhaps best for the listener and the reader to go back and read the earlier novels to get a taste of who these characters are rather than detail them here. But That's true. Although they don't have to have read the earlier novels to dive into this novel. It functions as a standalone. Indeed. And if they want to, there's a, there's a handy little summary of the first three novels at the beginning of this novel. But with these characters, there are three storylines that sort of emerge that I want to start to unpack. We yeah. have the murder on the orchard, and that's particularly gruesome, Robert. Well, you know, the novel begins with, uh, begins with a dead baby cleaved in twain with an axe. So you know it's good, right? And someone <laughs> blowing themselves up with dynamite. That's right, yeah. And you know, David, however gruesome that opening is, and it is gruesome, there's no question about that, it is actually the idea for it comes from a real crime that happened in Western Australia in the 1930s, completely unrelated to anything in my book. But the details of that crime are similar to the crime that starts this book. But what's interesting about the real crime is that it, it was so bizarre and so grotesque that it doesn't really work as fiction. It's too unbelievable. And so the, the murder that I've created, I had to sort of pull back a little bit from the real events in order to make it more credible. And that's, that's one of the strange things about fiction, that sometimes real events don't work as fiction because they're not credible. That murder on the orchard is related to a religious sect. The murder in WA, was that? No relation at all. The murder in WA was just a brutal, brutal domestic violence situation. Just absolutely hideous and unbelievable. Because there's mind. another murder associated with the religious sect that yeah. has a biblical reference. I'm interested in cults and sects and uh, the gullibility of people who fall for um, cult leaders. And, and the, the cult in 1944 uh, didn't exist in 1944, but its antecedents existed in real life in Ngunnawading in, 18, in the 1870s. There was a bloke in the 1870s, this is unbelievable, but it's true, who styled himself as the Ngunnawading Messiah, now, anyone who lives in Melbourne would just find those two words pushed together hilarious. So he called himself the Ngunnawading Messiah, and he had hundreds of followers out in the orchards of Ngunnawading who paid him money and who fell for his story that if they believed in him, they would have eternal life. And he wasn't talking about eternal life after life. His claim was, if you believe in me and pay me money, I will give you eternal life now. Now, the idea of having eternal life in Nunawading is probably no one's idea of a good time, but that's what he offered. People paid him money, and when they died, as some of them inevitably did, the explanation was simply they didn't have sufficient faith. And people bought it, David. They bought it. And I'm fascinated by that tendency in our species to believe nonsense. At the same time, you've got Anthony Prescott, who's the leader of this yeah. church of the firstborn, but you raise yeah. the question of whether it's manipulation or belief, or in fact, a business. And do they actually know that that's what they're doing? 
I absolutely believe that cult leaders know exactly what they're doing and that it's a business. It's all about exploitation. But here's the interesting thing. You also make a, a little reference to Norman Lindsay. I mean, yeah. Lindsay doesn't appear in the novel per se, but at that time, Lindsay wrote a work, Creative Effort, an essay in affirmation, creative vision is the highest expression of morality. So you had people True. like Lindsay purporting these ideas and getting a following behind them. Indeed. But of course, the Lindsay's belief about creative expression only applied to men because Lindsay did not believe that women were capable of creative expression. He had a view that women had what he called half brains. And it was similar to uh, homosexual men. He also believed they had half brains and were incapable of full expression. He was also a notorious anti-Semite and a misogynist. Did he truly believe these things? I think Norman Lindsay believed that women had nothing to say. Because that raises the argument about whether these leaders of these cults actually are manipulative or believe or are running a business. It, it all goes back to that. Uh, true, but I don't think that Norman Lindsay was a cult leader. I think Norman Lindsay was just a wanker. Anyway, there are murders that we um, have to solve or have to be solved yep. related to the church yep. of the firstborn. But we also then have a stalking murder, which is another thread that goes through your <laughs> And Dr. Yeah. Clara Dawson is yep. being followed by a gentleman yeah. called Bustle. Yes. See, I'm interested also in uh, the role of women in the 1940s and how limited their opportunities were and how subject they were to, well, misogyny and entrenched patriarchal attitudes. So I, I try and write women who are strong and who are fighting against that in their lives. So Helen Lord, for example, was a police woman in the first three novels, and she's not in this one. She set up her own uh, private inquiry agency. But Clara Dawson, you see, if I've got, I've got a lot of characters, so I need to have them do something. That's why there are different story threads throughout the book, because I want each of my characters to be occupied. And the challenge in writing a detective or a crime novel is that somehow each of those threads needs to look like it's separate. And then at the end, you bring them together to realise they were always heading in the one direction. Another thread you then have um, is the one associated with Japanese spies. Yeah, because I was interested in that too, because as we know, in a time of war, ethnic minorities take the blame. So in Australia, Germans, Italians and Japanese were interned. And the Japanese population was interned in South Australia at a camp called uh, Love Day. A couple of camps, but the main one was um, Love Day. And Love Day was a fascinating institution during the war. Uh, it was the place that produced most of the morphine in Australia at the time. They grew a, a large morphine uh, poppy crop there. And also um, pyrethrum, which is the main element in insecticides. But the interesting thing is that you've got a character called Tom Chafer, who yeah. is almost fanatically setting yes. out to entrap Winslow Zachary. 
Yeah. And and so that's fanaticism in and of itself, but it yes. seems to be something that's condoned. All of the nasty people in my novels generally are in some way fanatics because I think fanaticism is nasty. And Tom Chafer is an intelligence officer who cannot stand Winslow for Zachary for various reasons to do with class and education and resentment and all of that kind of thing. And also, a Winslow Fazakali happens to be married to a Japanese woman, which Tom Chafer finds intolerable because he's racist. And so he sets out to bring Fazakali down and to prove that he is, in fact, a fifth columnist working for the Japanese inside the Australian Air Force. Yeah. What fascinates me, though, is that fanaticism is condoned in certain societies oh, yeah. and, and, yes. and even in societies like ours where we think we're being completely tolerant and legitimate we still accept it and we still in fact practice certain fanaticisms in in day-to-day operations we do and we all in some way condone the fanaticisms with which we are comfortable and it's true it fanaticism makes hypocrites of all of us i think because there are fanaticisms that we condone, because we happen to approve of the key elements. I think we've seen yeah. it in society of late, dare I say, oh. especially in America. And yeah. But it goes back, I think you quote Voltaire, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Yeah, I love that quote, because that there, I think, is the history of religion in a single sentence. That's all you need to know about how religion works. But does it also suggest that we are incredibly gullible? We are, David, we are a frightful species. The accident of self-consciousness through evolution created monsters of us. And you just look at the world around you and you realise we're frightful. Believe it or not, the orchard murders <laughs> is in fact enlightening, entertaining, uh, grim in one or two places where the gruesomeness of the murders comes through. But there's a, a light levity and... Yes, it's also funny. It's also funny. <laughs> Your use of language, good sir, defongerated. <laughs> yeah. Gigors, <laughs> lubricious. We get this lovely use of language all the way through to lighten the tone, shall we yeah. say. Yeah. But that language would also have to be of the era as well, wouldn't it? I make absolutely sure that uh, anything I write won't be anachronistic because anachronisms just, they stick out if you get that wrong. I'm always careful to use language that is consistent with the language that would have been used. And don't forget, 1944 wasn't that long ago, so they weren't speaking Shakespearean English, but they wouldn't have been using modern expressions that are familiar to us, especially slang. Slang is the thing that ages the fastest in language. Slang hangs around for 10, 15 years, and then it's gone and, it's, and it changes. So you have to be very careful with that. Well, if the listener and the reader want to find out more, the novel is The Orchard Murders. The author, Robert Gott, and it's from Scribe. So, Robert, thank you very much yep. for talking with me today. Thank you very much for having me on your show, David. It is, as always, a delight. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.